Well, David, there's been many times where I'm not sure what I'm supposed to say next. So I just fake it, and y'all don't know the difference. <laughs> well, that's not entirely true, but that you don't know the difference. <laughs> well, good morning. I'm Matt. Um, I'm one of the pastors here, and it is great to be with you this morning. Uh, the sound team always tells me never to clap, and I always forget. So there you have it. Sorry, guys. Uh, well, Atlanta doesn't know uh, what to do with snow. We all agree, right? We, for those of you who lived here for any amount of time, we, we don't know what to do with snow. Like one of the realities is it's no secret that winter in the midst of most of the southern cities and the southern hemisphere of the United States doesn't know how to deal with the reality of the winter climate. Uh, when the temperature drops below or near 32 degrees, well, there's immediately like school's got to be canceled, right? I mean, that's what school administrators are thinking and every child is hoping. If there's the threat of snow, I mean, there's a mad wild rush to the grocery store to pick up the things that you can't live without, which of course is milk and bread and toilet paper, because 18 hours without a new batch of toilet paper, what shall we do? You know us, don't be all, this is us, this is we the people. Um, and then when it really does snow or freeze or ice, like everything shuts down, right? It ends, everything comes to a crashing halt. Now, for those who live in, in, in colder climates, well, they can't afford the luxury of having a snow day every time the temperature hits somewhere near 32 degrees. How many of you guys have like, lived up north, like you know, above the Mason-Dixon line, where there's snow sometimes, right? That's not an option. If you move to Minneapolis, you're gonna find this wild thing where children go to school when it's under freezing temperatures. Like, if you go to Buffalo, New York, you'll find that people with snow banks like high and, and They'll be going to work. It's this wild activity that no one suspects could happen when we're here. So how is it that some people seem to thrive in certain conditions while others are paralyzed by something that's half as difficult, half as severe? Well, the answer is that people in cold climates don't hope for a change in their environment. Instead, they change their investment in the midst of the environment. So in Minneapolis and in Buffalo, they invest in winter. When I was in high school, there was one snowplow for the city of Atlanta. I, you must not realize how much a snowplow can do in an hour. Not enough, right? So, but Minneapolis, they just have, everyone owns a snowplow. Everyone's got a shovel in front of their truck. They're invested in winter. They invest in winter because if they don't, their cities, their communities, their families will never thrive. And when it comes to living out our calling, many people are asking God to change their environment. When God, well, God wants us to change our investment instead. Many think of God that if he would just change their work or the people around them, the people that they work with or, or live with, then they would be instantaneously better. Everything would be great. It would be sunny all the time. We long for a better place and better people, but God invites us to a different kind of way. If we want to stay and step into God's calling, we can't just pray for God to change our environment. Instead, we want to allow God to change our investment. That's what today's sermon is going to be about, what it looks like for us to invest in God's best. Now, 
if you've been with us for the last few weeks, we've been focusing on this particular series, which is on purpose, right? We're looking to be people who, who discover and who delight in the reality of our calling by God in our lives. And we looked at a couple different elements. One, just the beauty and, and the reality that God indeed is, has actually has a destiny and a, and, a, and a design for who we are. We looked at the reality that, that we're, we're people that tend to sometimes have false dispositions about who we are and projections of who we are and actually false projections of, of God as well. I've been invited, of course, last week to, to dream and to plan God's dreams for our lives. So in the midst of thinking about calling and looking to name that, this week we're going to turning our attention to investments. Because here's the thing. We could have the greatest plans and dreams in the entire world, but if we don't choose to invest in them, if we don't choose to invest in them, then very few things will actually change in our lives. The future realization of God's calling belongs to those who invest in it. Let me say that again. The future realization of God's calling in our lives belongs to those who invest in it. And so today's passage, um, which we've been in Jeremiah, walking through the reality of his life and how calling is playing itself out through and in him. Today's passage, we, we find uh, Jeremiah in yet again some pretty disturbing circumstances. Last week, remember, I mentioned that King Nebuchadnezzar came down with the army and he, he, he besieged the city briefly and he was able to depose the king and put a new king that was going to be friendly to him. And he took off 10,000 of the best people because that way no one would rebel. Well, 10 years later, the new king decides he's going to rebel and not pay tribute. And so what happens, imagine this, Babylon comes flying back in. They tear down all the cities. This time, destruction covers the land. They tear down all the cities and they find themselves besieging Jerusalem, the last city left over. No one can get in and get out, and they're just waiting. At this point, they're just waiting for all the residents to either die of starvation or disease so that they can finally capture this capital city. And Jeremiah, of course, as we would expect, ends up being one of the people inside the walls of the city. Poor Jeremiah. Weeping prophet. Man. Not only is he inside the city, but as everybody in the city is struggling and kind of withering away, G uh, Jeremiah gets this message from the Lord, and basically it's this. He says, listen, the Babylon Babylonians are going to win. Like, they're going to win. They've been besieging the city for over a year now. They're going to win. Judah is going to lose. Like, they're going to breach the city walls. People are going to die. And, and the best chance we have to minimize that destruction is to surrender to them. Now, the king who's been, you know, hyping the troops up, going like, no, 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 we can do this. We don't have to bow our knee to Babylon, finds himself with a predicament. Jeremiah's talking doom and gloom, and he's like, we can do it. And so what he does is what every king does when someone is saying something you don't want to hear. He throws them in the stockade. He throws them in, in jail inside the city walls. Now, the only thing that's worse than being in a city that's currently besieged and starving is to be in jail in a city that's besieged and starving. And, but that's exactly where Jeremiah finds himself. Desperate and difficult circumstances. And yet Jeremiah refuses to be a product of his environment. Instead, Jeremiah chooses to invest in God's best for his future. So let's look at Jeremiah chapter 32, starting in verse 6. Jeremiah said, The word of the Lord came to me. Behold, Hanamel, the son of Shalem, your uncle, will come to you and say, buy my field that is in Anathoth, for the right of redemption by, buy, by purchase is yours. Well, then 
Hanamel, his cousin, my cousin, came to me in the court of the guard in accordance with the word of the Lord and said to me, buy my field that is in Anathoth in the land of Benjamin for the right of, of possessing, possession and redemption is yours. Buy it for yourself. Then I knew that this was the word of the Lord. And I bought the field at Anathoth from Anamel, my cousin, and weighed out the money to him, 17 shekels of silver. I signed the deed, sealed it, got witnesses, and weighed the money on scales. Verse 13, I charged Baruch in their presence, saying, Thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, Take these deeds, both this sealed deed of purchase and this open deed, and put them in an earthenware vessel that they may last for a long time. For thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, houses and fields and vineyards shall again be bought in this land. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Well, one of the fundamental principles that emerges out of what we see here is that if we're not sold out to God, we're going to sold that sell out to something else. If we're not fundamentally sold out to God, we will sell out to someone or something else. The word of the Lord comes to Jeremiah while he's in just terrible circumstances, under arrest. Now, if Jeremiah was hoping for a word of the Lord, I'm sure he's hoping that the Lord's going to say, Jeremiah, you will be released tomorrow with a sandwich. That's not what God says. Instead, God says to him, Jeremiah, I want you to invest in a piece of family property near your hometown as a sign of the future restoration and redemption that I will bring. Now, on the surface, uh, this looks like a complete waste of money. The land that he's purchasing is currently under Babylonian rule. Like, it's not in, near the city. It's actually in Benjamin. It's, it's over there. They're, they're ruling it already. On top of that, the only benefit would be if someone was going to be able to remain behind and cultivate that land and turn it into something valuable, but he's in prison. Not just in prison, but he's the one who said, oh, by the way, that's not going to happen, at least not in the foreseeable future. So it seems to make no sense, but God tells him to buy this land, to send a message to the people. that The best days for the land are not behind, but are in front of them. Not immediately, but further in the future, after the exile, there is hope. So invest in the future. Now we need to understand, this is pivotal, that, that for Israel, the Israelite people, the land was connected not just to an idea or to farming, it's connected to their identity and to their destiny. It's connected to their identity and to their destiny. There's a whole code of law that exists to help people retain their land year after year, even in difficult circumstances, because it's so connected, both identity and destiny are tied to it. And this prophetic message, this prophetic purchase, in a sense, from Jeremiah, it's making a prophetic statement. That he buys the land, not, not because it's a good investment right now, not because it's useful for today, but because it confirms his identity of his people and of himself into the future for tomorrow. So in this purchase, Jeremiah is refusing to sell out to the present environments, and instead he's, he's showing that he's fundamentally and fully sold out to God's preferred future, even when he doesn't know it or understand it. And here's the key. How we behave today is the best indicator of what we believe about tomorrow. 
how we behave today is, is one of the best indicators of what we believe is actually true about tomorrow. And too often, pressed by our present circumstances, well, we sell out tomorrow because we're simply trying to survive today. But Jeremiah shows us a different way. Those who desire God's best must become sold out, or we will eventually sell out ourselves. We must be sold out to God's dream that he has placed in front of us. We must be sold out to who he has said we are and to the calling he's placed in our heart. We must be sold out to who he is, who he declares himself to be, and who he desires to be in our lives and who he desires to be through our lives. And it's only by being sold out to God that we will not sell out to our present circumstances. This is what investment is all about at the end of the day. It's choosing to believe and to commit to God's preferred future rather than to be overwhelmed and overcome by whatever is right in front of us. So how in the world do we do that? Well, in the New Testament, and particularly in the Gospels, Jesus talks a ton about investment. He talks about the kingdom of God as, as this mustard seed, right? That's the smallest of all seeds, but it's going to grow to be so significant that all the plants and all, all, the, all the plants, all the plants of the earth, all the birds of the earth are going to come and nest underneath it. And declaring that, he's talking about that there's this growth pattern to the kingdom of God that exists. He also talks about the kingdom of God as, as this, this treasure that's hidden in a field that a man goes and he sells everything he possesses so that he can buy the field and acquire that treasure. There's, there's this investing of all that we have for that which is greater, that which is grander, that which is more beautiful, that which will have most impact. But maybe one of the most clear place that Jesus talks about investment is in Matthew chapter 25. Now, this is one of Jesus' most famous parables, uh, but it's also, if you think about it, as we will today, one of the more troubling parables. He talks about about a master who goes away after having made an investment in his servants. So read with me as I read from the screen. For it, that is the kingdom, will be like a man going on a journey who called his servants and entrusted to them his property. To one he gave five talents, to another two, to another one, to each according to his ability. Then he went away. He who had received five talents went at once and traded with them and had made and made five talents more. So also he who had two talents made two talents more. But he who had received the one talent went and dug in the ground and hid his master's money. Now after a long time, the master of those servants came and settled accounts with them. And he who had received the five talents came forward, bringing the five talents more, saying, Master... You delivered to me five talents. Here, I have made five talents more. His master said to him, Well done, good and faithful servant. You have been faithful in little. I will set you over much. Enter into the joy of your master. And he also, who had two talents, came forward saying, Master, you have you delivered to me two talents. Here, I have made two talents more. And his master said to him, well done, good and faithful servant. You have been faithful over little. I will set you over much. Enter into the joy of your master. He also, who had received the one talent, came forward, saying, Master, I, I knew you to be a hard man, reaping where you did not sow and gathering where you scattered no seed. So I was afraid. And I went and hid your talent in the ground. Here you have what is yours. But his master answered him, You... Wicked 
and slothful servant. You knew that I reap where I do not sow and gather where I scattered no seed? Then you ought to have invested my money with the bankers, and at my coming I should have received what was my own with interest. So take the talent from him and give it to the one who has ten talents. For to everyone who has more will be given, will more be given, and he will have an abundance. But from the one who has not, even what he has will be taken away. And cast the worthless servant into the outer darkness, in that place where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. So here's a simple story, right? And it's incredibly profound. The master has invested some money with his servants, and he goes away for a while, and he returns expecting to see the results, the collect from his investment. And so the first guy, we'll call him five guy, got five talents, two guy got two talents, and one guy got one talent. This is good. This is an audience participation moment. We're doing good. This is good. But inside this pretty simple story is, is actually a couple of really disquieting realities. One of which, by the way, I just mentioned. There's three people here, and they get different amounts of investment. Each of them gets a different amount of investment. One gets five, one gets two, one gets one. Now, this is a little disturbing because this is America. Shouldn't each one of them get like 2.333333? I mean, that, that's fair, right? However, if we look at our own lives, if we look at everything we've ever seen, ever known, the honest description of reality is there's always someone who has more, more than you, and there's always someone who has less than you. There's someone who has more intellect and, and, and maybe someone who has more relationships and at the same time someone who has maybe less money and, and worse health and maybe just lesser spiritual foundations. There is inequity. But listen, the justice of this parable is in the reward that they're eligible for. The justice is in the reward that they're eligible for. The key to see is that the five guy and the two guy, they both double their investment, but their response, their reward from the Lord is identical, right? They get the same reward, well done, good and faithful servant. It's a good reward. Well done, good and faithful servant. You have been faithful over little, I will set you over much. Enter into the joy of your master. The justice of this parable is, is what you're eligible for. The justice in life is what we are eligible for in light of what has God has invested in us. And I have really good news in light of this. You are not responsible for anything you haven't been given. You are not responsible for anything you have not been given. Isn't that good news? It's good news. Trust me. God is not asking you to maximize your life calling into anything that he hasn't first invested in. I suggest to you that everything that you are called to do, God is going to invest into you. Now, maybe sometimes it's going to look small, like it will be seed form. 
but he isn't going to expect you to return in your life anything that he hasn't already gifted you in your life. So you don't need to measure yourself to someone else by what they've been given. Amen? That's the freedom. Everything you're expected has been given. Now the disturbing piece, the second disturbing piece on this is what happens to one guy. So you have five guy and you have two guy and then you have one guy. Now it's not that one guy wastes his talent, right? It's not the picture of the prodigal son, right? The famous prodigal son who goes off and squanders it in wild living. It's not a, it's not a squandering. He doesn't seem to misuse the money in any particular way. No, he, he just plays it safe. He does nothing. Now, the reaction of the master is not, oh, oh shucks, one guy. We'll try better next time, all right? Not at all. You wicked and slothful servant. Whew. You wicked and slothful servant. What does Jesus do? Jesus, what is Jesus doing? Jesus is, he's eliminating the middle ground. He's eliminating the middle ground. Now, my life, I love the middle ground, right? There's the people who are doing all this risk-taking life and, 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 and moving out and trying stuff. And, and then there's the people who are squandering. And I can go like, okay, that seems a little wild and crazy and that's just wrong. And so I'm just going to stay right here in the middle. Neutral. But in Jesus' economy, neutral is not neutral. Neutral is evil, he says. You wicked and slothful servant. And what Jesus is doing here is he's calling attention to the greatest danger in the kingdom. The greatest danger is not that we would try and fail, but for those who do nothing. You see, failure is always a great motivator and innovator. We fail forward. You learn, you pick back up, and you move forward again. The great risk of the kingdom expansion is not people who will, not try, who will try and fail. It's people who will just do nothing. So why, my, why might the one guy have chosen to do nothing instead of risking moving forward? Well, let's, let's guess a couple things. Maybe. Here's a few maybes. Maybe the one guy doesn't do anything because he's insecure. I mean, by that I mean that he undervalues what he's been given. He's like the guy, those of you who've been to Disney, right? You can get the fast pass, right? You go to Disney, you get the fast pass. And when you have the fast pass on that, you know what, the one or two rides you get for the day on the fast pass, you're going through the line and you're like, suckers, right? You know, just looking at everybody like, what up? Um, but then on the rest of the day, which is basically most of your day, you find yourself on what we'll call the regular line, right? And as those people with the fast pass go by, you think terrible things about them. You know you do. In the same way, same way the fast pass manifests itself, one of the things that we do is we undervalue where we are. We undervalue the regular line because we long for the fast pass line. The surefire way to do nothing with what we've been given in the regular line is to find ourselves yearning, gazing, looking extensively or exclusively at the fast pass line, going like, that's what I should be doing, that's what I should become, that's what I should be. 
If you're always yearning for what you don't have, we must be careful that in our insecurities, we don't find ourselves longing to live someone else's lives and failing to maximize the one God has given us. So maybe the one guy's insecure. He's undervalued what he's been given. Or maybe it's his fear. Fear about, fear, his fear is particularly about maybe overvaluing what he could lose. Maybe the one guy is thinking, I have just one talent. I need to make sure that I hold on to it and play it safe and don't screw it up. Maybe he's afraid of what he can lose. Why is this the most dangerous thing for the kingdom advancement, for the movement of our call forward, is to do nothing? Because honestly, God's okay. One thing you notice in this particular um, parable is like God's portfolio is like pretty well like, you know, diversified. He's got other people working and doing things, which gives us this unbelievable freedom to be able to move out. And if we fail, God's got it. He's okay. He reinvests. God is giving us the opportunity to get a return on what he's placed in us. But when nothing becomes normal, then we're in danger. Um, maybe it's a third thing. Maybe it's not just that he's insecure because he's under, undervaluing what he's been given or that he's actually afraid because he's overvaluing what he could and potentially lose. Maybe it's that he's deceived about God. He's misvaluing who God is. And, and you can hear it right here. Do you hear his language in the parable? What does he say? He says, I knew you to be a hard man reaping where you did not sow. But wait a minute. That's exactly what the master is not. I mean, a talent is an entire year's worth of wage. And the master has chosen to just give it as an investment, to pour out something very valuable. He's generous. He's not miserly. But one guy's seeing life differently. He's seeing the master differently. His picture of the master is of a hard man who's holding out on him maybe, setting him up to fail. And so he does nothing out of fear. Here's a key question that we have to come eventually and to wrestle with when it relates to our resources is, is do we believe that God has our best interest at heart? Loved ones, do you believe that God has your best interest at heart? That he's not only right, but that he's good. That he's invested into our lives and he's inviting us to join him with everything that we are and everything that we had have. Things he's placed in our hearts, maybe in seed form, that we would do so with faith, believing him, trusting him to nurture and grow what he's given us. So maybe this morning you're thinking, if I could just get an environment change, that then, then I could live out some of my life calling. And, and, and maybe there are times where it is right and fitting to change your environment. It is actually true and good. I'm not saying that's never the case, but primarily, if we find ourselves living our lives on purpose, it will not be constantly trying to change our environment. But by looking at God, asking him how he desires for us to shift our investment.
And by the way, when you think about your investments, about what God is investing, what you've been given, it's not just money, which I know is always where we go first. I know the parable is about, is about cash and money. We have various kinds of assets that God's invested into you. You have spiritual, God's invested spiritually in you with wisdom and power and, and, and spiritual foundations and authority. God's invested relationally into you and the people in your family, people that you have connections, people that follow you, people that, you're, that are influenced by you, your friends. God's invested into you physically by your energy, by your health, by what you're able to do. He's invested into you intellectually. All the content he's poured into you over the years of learning, all the ways in which you've used that, maybe the ways in which he's made you creatively, maybe the ways in which he's drawn you to credentialize yourself and actually be valuable and powerful in the world in that way. God's invested into you, of course, financially with dollars and assets. So we have various kinds of assets that God that God has invested into us. And the way that we leverage those different types of investment is directly to, connected to how we end up living. Believing that God has given those to us and saying, this is connected to how I will end up living. Uh, I was talking to um, the Beckers over the course of the last few weeks, actually a month and some change, and I was talking to Jonathan over the weekend. And um, they've been kind of wrestling with all kinds of opportunities that God's laid before them for years now questions of hospitality that Laura and I talked about a couple years ago. And, and one of the things that they invested in a few years ago was a tiny house on their property. So if you don't know what a tiny house is, it is just that, a tiny house. Um, and on their property, so they, they've been like renting it out. So some of you actually been able to rent it out, be there for a couple days in a tiny house, and it's quiet and secluded, and it's awesome. And so they've used that as an Airbnb. It's been revenue. It's been just this really great asset resource, the thing they've been enjoying. And they're in the mix of a lot of flux in their family. Lauren started a new job. Jonathan started a new job. There's all kinds of things moving around. They have four teenage children, which are awesome, I'm supposed to say. Um, and actually, only a couple of them are here, so a couple of y'all are awesome. Um, but, um, but one of the things that, that God's been laying on their heart is the opportunity. And they were like, okay, so starting at the new year, one of the desires of their hearts, one of the ways in which they sense God's movement and calling over the years that's become clearer and clearer over the years is, is to be able to engage and care for women in particular who, who are either coming out of like the, the kind of growing, outgrowing the, the foster care environment and are at risk of maybe homelessness or those that are in, in, in rough family situations where they're actually needing for their own safety to be removed and transitioned from there and to create and provide a safe place. And so they were saying, hey, listen, coming this next year, we're thinking we're gonna ask God, maybe this would, what this could look like and what the process would look like. And last week, God dropped a 19-year-old young lady on their doorstep. It's not the right time. It's just not, I mean, right? And of course, and of course, because God's been working on them and inviting them, they said, okay, we're not quite ready. We have our, you know, it's, it's rented on the weekends still, the, 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 the tiny houses, but we're gonna figure out a way. And so this past week, this young lady moved into the tiny house. And then this weekend, when they had guests, they went and, she went and stayed with Lauren's mom. So did you see how it's, it's, it's not all pretty and clean, the way in which God moves in our calling? It's, it's not. And, and just so we're clear, like, they're not the pantheon of righteousness. They're not. They're just broken people, right? Y'all are, are just people, right? They, they use, you know, the toilet paper that we all buy, you know, just like everybody else. So we're all, you know, but, but God's been at work. And, and, and they're just going like, okay, here's what we got. How can we use it? And God's going like, oh, cool, here. 
I have something for you. And, and, and that, to me, that's just the picture of how God works, how he invites us into that as we continue to look for him and look to him, saying, what have you invested in us? We now take that investment and just begin to make it open to the Lord in whatever ways is fitting to the way he's calling us. And it hasn't been a super clean road. It hasn't been an obvious road all along, but it is now present tense reality. And the invitation and the question to you is, what does that look like for you? Because it's not owning a tiny house. They're the only people I know that own a tiny house. So it's not that. We don't look at the fast lane and be like, oh, it's a tiny, find a tiny house. No, that's not how it works. Don't buy a tiny house. <laughs> I don't know, maybe buy a tiny house. But just like Jeremiah, make no mistake, his circumstances, it's easy to get overwhelmed with circumstances. And, and, and candidly, the irony of it all is like, the Beckers are not a great, they're waiting for January because life needs to settle down. And yet, just like Jeremiah, it's like, no, 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 the city's besieged and you're in jail. And yet God comes in and says, I want you to invest. Things I've already given you because I have a vision of the future that you're supposed to be displaying for you and for the people that you're calling to display the messages of the Lord to the people. But oftentimes the now looms so large. But if we can, by God's grace, begin to look to the other side of our circumstances, that feels like the now is oppressing everything, and begin to see what God sees, and to hold fast to the reality that, that God is in the process of restoring and redeeming all things. And that we have a part to play in that. And he's inviting, he's beckoning, he's invested, he's put in. Inviting us to be a part of what it looks like to invest out. To the degree we're able to see that way, to that degree we'll find ourselves free to move and risk and head towards him. To take the things that we're not sure and say, Lord, they're yours. You do something with these, I'm in. So what are you investing in right now? What is God calling you to invest in? What kind of relationships do you have that you, that you can invest as a leverage, as a capital, as an asset, to be able to say, God, what, what would you have me do with the kind of people that have influence, the people that, that I have influence over? What about, what, about, what about the resources you have? What does your time look like now? Are you an empty nester now? That means your life is different than when you had little ones running around. Do you have little ones running around? What does your time look like? Your energies. And the question I think that Jeremiah ends up beckoning here is how are we allowing God to direct our investment in our life? Like how are we allowing him to be the one who directs our investment? Because you see that the reason Jeremiah invests in this piece of property is because God told him to do it. As we said, it's not, it's not good investment strategy. It's kind of a down market. But he does it because God told him so, which implies two things. That Jeremiah is listening to the Lord. That he's hearing from him and then he's responding with what God says to do, which means that he believes that the Lord is good and he's in jail. Just like Paul was in jail reading this, from the Timothy reading. God's doing the same kind of thing with us that he was with Jeremiah. With our time, our money, our relationships, may not be able to, easy to see the impact that our decisions and that our investment look like. They are real. 
because God is at work in them and with them. For some of us here today, the investment of our life is, is going to be is going to be difficult, and it's going to be challenging. Some of us today are maybe sitting here and, and, and God has actually provided you some clarity on, on, the, on the what and on the why. And, and today he's wanting to actually lean in and say, I also have some things to say about the how. About how I want to invest your life into other people, into other contexts. And it's going to be good. Oh, it may not be easy. It, may, it won't be cost-free, but it will be good and it will be lasting. Loved ones, the future is waiting to be created by those who see what God sees, who see what God's doing, who hear what he's saying. God's inviting each one of us to create with him the future that he's inviting us into. So let's shift from asking God to change our environments. And instead, once again, let's allow him to direct our investment in our lives and the lives of those around us and to do so on purpose. And we get to do that right now, even just beginning by coming to this table. You see, this um, communion, what it represents, is fundamentally just a reversed investment, right? Just a reverse investment. This table is a reminder that, that God is fully invested in you. Like this tells you that God is fully invested in you. That infinite cost to himself, Jesus divested himself of all glory, of all splendor for our sake. and became obedient to death for us. And having taken our place, he, he's now given us his perfect record and he's vested us with gifts and talents and, and resources and relationships and above all with the power of his spirit within us. And he's inviting us to invest in the people in the context that he's placed us into. That's what this table reminds us of. So let us receive his grace through his body and his, his blood and allow it to renew our love for him and to galvanize our devotion to invest with him to his praise and to his glory and to his honor. It is why he came for you. Let's pray. Father, Thank you. Thank you that from the foundations of the world, you, you sought to pour out, to give of who you were, and to invest in your people. And you're not done. That as, as you thought of each one of our lives, as you knew us before we knew ourselves, that you had implanted and that you continue to invest in who we are. And Lord, we want to be stewards of that. We want, to be, we want to be two guy and, and five guy. We want to be people who are getting to hear, well done, good and faithful servant. Not because we've been great, but because in your greatness, you've been able to accomplish mighty things that we otherwise never could with what you've put in us. And we don't want it to be some vague idea. We actually want it to be the things that you've, the things that you've called us to. And so, Lord, we ask you, by your grace, would you show us would you give us courage to step in away from fear? And would you galvanize our hearts to see significant things happen in the callings of our lives? Or the kingdom awaits and we want to be a part of that. So glorify yourself in your people, through your people, to the praise of Jesus, whose name we pray. Amen. Well, loved ones, 
this is the great meal of Jesus for you, his grace offered to you. So come and receive the body and blood of Jesus.